And the rumor on the street is that the unions are run by the bikey gangs. And apparently uh, there was a bit of a standoff. So the bikey gangs also run the security. So they run security of a lot of pubs and clubs. And so they said, we'll do the security of these quarantine hotels. Well, apparently one of the security guards ended up, that are meant to be standing out the front of the doors, ended up going into one of the uh, hotel rooms to misbehave in a playful, sensual uh, way and uh, contracted CV-19 and then went back to his family and, and the neighbourhood just exploded into a hot spot and then that just continued. So um, it's a funny story and there's probably a lot of truth to it. In fact, I think it is pretty true. But um, what happened was then we just got thrust back in to stage three restrictions and now stage four restrictions, which is where we have a curfew between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. You can't leave uh, your house for longer than an hour for exercise and shopping and you can't leave your neighbourhood five kilometres. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to when it's fast track to stage eight restrictions where you're not allowed to leave your bed because that's where I do my best work. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize this about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail patch has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either Either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is one of my favorite guys that I've come across in our uh, travels, Jules Lund, who we know and love for his work, brilliant work as the founder of Tribe. Uh, and Jules, we're going to talk about that. I know you're in Melbourne right now, which is having a tough time. So what's your emerging thoughts on what it's going to look like in six months, 12 months, 18 months? Well, look, um, it suits me. Um, when, it, when, when Armageddon first hit, I went, great, this is where I'm going to do my best work. Because I'm in a startup, so we're always terrified that things are going to implode. We're always scared. We're always in survival mode. Um, th there's never been certainty. Um, and so a, a lot of the startups sort of just kept pace, in fact, accelerated while, you know, I suppose a lot of the big companies were caught in headlights. Um, but, you know, I, I've always liked to, to break um, and um i suppose challenge society's norms around how you should work so i mean the first the obvious one is working from home you know there's there's its own challenges because people have to build new muscles but i think all in all it probably leads to greater productivity and greater um satisfaction in life um i i love 
I think in my world, I'm excited by a monstrous paradigm shift, which needed to happen probably in order for my business to, um, to expand. And I suppose more specifically what that looks like is just challenging creativity and challenging production. Um, and so I, I think during this time, marketers have been forced to experiment and, and take risks they never thought they would and break rules that they thought were real rules and just realize, oh my God, there's so much more breadth and so much more scope and so much more, um, so many more greener pastures and things that we should be sampling. Um, and, and then they start to get feedback and say, shoot, this stuff's performing, you know, we're able to achieve things in new ways, faster and cheaper. And, and it just, it's recalibration of how we were doing advertising, how we were doing media and marketing. And, you know, that, that's a really, I mean, that's a once in a, God, that's not even a generational thing, you know, to really be challenged like that. Um, I suppose the last real time was, you know, wartime where, the, the, the whole earth sort of just gets a real shake over a long period of time. So after this, I think we'll, we will have all let go a lot of the fluff. That's what Seth Godin said. I, I interviewed him the other day for a, a content series, which we're partnered in on. I asked him that question and it was just like, I just think all the, the fluff that we thought we needed, we realize we don't, um, which I think is really bang on. I think marketers are going to take a deep breath and say, you know, that last level of fluff and hype, we didn't need that. We shouldn't do that. We should get back to why we set out to do this in the first place. That doesn't mean there isn't room for levity, but it means what people want are people. What we want is humanity. We've already figured out that Amazon will sell us whatever you make for a dollar less. The race to the bottom, that's not going away. But I'm arguing we need to not race for the bottom so much and maybe we could race for the top instead. So here you have emerged at you know, still a pretty young age as you know, one of the true global thought leaders in our industry. Let's go back though. Your background was very much in the visual mediums of graphic design and photography. Talk about how that background grounds you and how that help shape your perspective? Well, I suppose I've always been a, a storyteller and I started that off visually. Um, and then I, um, I moved into, uh, I actually moved into TV uh, quickly after that. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's funny. I, I did a summer camp in upstate New York, right? So then the Catskills, which you would, you would know, um, when I was 19. And then I ended up traveling around the world for eight months with my best mate. But rather than going to the theme parks, me and my loudmouth, ballsy best mate and I went to all the talk shows. So we would go to the talk shows and we would try to create as much like we would try to just be the biggest show offs you can imagine. Like we figured out pretty early, if you wore something really colorful, like a red top or a green top, they'd put you right up the front, you know, cause, uh, cause the TV would look more vibrant. So we, we just did the circuit 
So, look, I got in a, an argument with a, a male gigolo on Jerry Springer. Um, my mate one commented a day on Ricky Lake. I proposed to a girl on Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Roseanne Barr gave me money to go out on the street as a segment and take photos of weird people. Um, Queen Latifah got me up dancing with Lenny Kravitz. And it just went on and on and on. Um, and we just had a hilarious time. And I'd watch Jerry Springer in between the breaks um, and just tell these stories. And just, he looked like he was having fun. They all looked like they were having fun. And so up until that point, I had, um, I had been, a, uh, basically at 15, I, I was pretty close to getting booted out of school. And I had someone come to my school and run a, a workshop um, and challenge me in ways that I never had been challenged before. Um, uh, uh, he was a celebrity at the time, but he was a really successful AFL footballer. Jim Steins. So we declare Jim Steins from the Melbourne Football Club the winner, the 1991 Brownlow Medal. And um, he's, you know, he has the record for the most consecutive games of AFL football ever played. He played 244 games, 12 years of football as the ruck, which is one of the toughest positions, without missing a game. So this was a very phenomenal. He was a. He was a. He was a student of life, but just also the world's greatest natural teacher. Jimmy Steins has got a cult hero following out here in Australia, and yet there's a little bit of it back home as well too. Uh, I don't know where this cult hero following is coming from. I haven't heard of it. You haven't heard of it? <laughs> Let me tell you, Jim, there's a lot of number 11s that get around the outside of the ground there of a, of a weekend. Yeah, I, I suppose when you, when you start playing first, you know, Kids, it's it's it, football is just such a religion in this country, you know. It's uh, you, know, you just see it with the racial, the whole thing around the racial vilification. I look at it and go, wow, it's taken footy to make a real stand and make a change in this field. No one else has been able to know, and it just shows that that's where the power is in this state, in, in this country. So it's, uh, it's certainly a lot different than it is back in Ireland. And so I was ripping apart his his talk at my school, sitting up the back and being a smartass, and he called me out and and basically slapped me across the face with a pat on the back verbally because the teacher was going to boot me. And he just sort of said, no, no, stay here. And he was young himself. He was only about 26, but basically he challenged me. Um, he said, look, you've got something you can control. You know, you, you're leading 200 boys in, in this room against me. He said, why don't you come along to this course and see if you can channel it? Cause right now you're leading 200 boys the wrong way. And I was like, okay. So I was 15. And so I turned up to this course and, you know, that was 25 years ago and it just transformed my life. And I ended up following this guy around, you know, I'd wag school and I'd follow him to all of these guests. He would talk at a, at like a teacher's seminar or he'd talk at um, a, a government function or he would talk at a corporate event or he would be um, raising money at a charity and he would tell these stories one after another. And, um, and he, he created this foundation that's worked with over a million Australian teenagers that just really inspires greatness. So I, in that course, there were 30 kids 
and they were from all walks of life. So I was sort of middle of the range, but then you had kids there that were living on the streets, other kids that were heroin addicts, some that were living in a you know, psychiatric unit, private school boys that looked like they have everything, so much money, but just no present father um, in the exchange of that. Welcome to Every Heart Beats True, the Jim Stein story. So why am I here? Well, as a 15 year old, I was one of the first kids to get involved in the Reach Foundation the organisation that Jim started as a way to help young people of all walks of life realise their potential. And to be honest, I actually don't know where I'd be without Reach or without Jim for that matter. He has uh, had my back and, and also those of half a million other kids. And that's why Jim's story is so much more than one of football's most legendary tales. Tonight, we celebrate him as he fights the greatest battle of his life. And we celebrate him not so much as a patient, but as a teacher. There were two real things that they nailed the first one was they just created a safe space where you didn't have that at school and you could come and say, hey, I'm getting beaten up by my brother and I don't know what to do. And then the second one is you just had other people around you that were just a little bit older, right? Just that, a little bit older and positive. Just those two ingredients, a little bit older and positive. And we knew with church groups or the scouts groups or even summer camps, the power of that you know, that village takes a village to raise a child. And so this thing just grew and grew and grew. And it was sort of like, it was raw and it was dangerous. It reminded me of um, Dead Poets Society because these guys were breaking all the norms uh, and it wasn't, you know, you're not there talking to your therapist. You're out there, you know, they'd hang us off cliffs to face our fears. We would break arrows in our neck, like pushing against an arrow and not like this weird, we would be, doing these candle ceremonies in caves, like stuff that sounded cult-like, but was just so edgy. And so I fell in love with this and I started to mimic this guy, this leader, Jim Steins, and he became my best mate. But he taught me how to present TV, even though he'd never done it himself. And so I would just slowly, I'd first watch how he did and write it down. And then I would, I would just recite exactly what he did and then after a while, he just kept pushing me and he'd go, he could see something in me that I couldn't see myself. And he just kept trying to bring it out. So I'd, I'd, I'd witness it. And so he'd go, right today, you know, I'd be driving out, driving some, you know, three hours away into the countryside. You're going to do my intro. And I go, I'm too nervous. You're going to do it. So you say, right. So I'd do the intro. And then he said, right, you're going to do the icebreaker. You're going to do the activity. Right. So I'd do that. And then he goes, now you're going to do the big session. And now you know, I'm going to support you. And this happened over years and years. And he, he put me on stage to host um, fundraisers, right, in front of a 1,000 people at 16. And so I would be doing that and I'd hate it, right? I'd be horrible at it. And I'd have this little voice in my shoulder saying, you suck and everything. And he, he would just overpower that doubt with this, you know, the little angel on the other shoulder, like in the cartoons. And so he put me forward until I just... I started to see some, I started to make a difference. And then after a while, I'd experiment with my own content. And I, I used to run this workshop where I'd go out to 300 kids and they might be 15 and they're ripping each other to shreds in year nine, grade nine. And I would do this session where I'd get them all to close their eyes and lay on the floor. And this was something that we had experimented with. And I'd play them almost like a movie in their mind, Right. So I'd say things like, I want you to imagine a time in your life where you felt alone. Like at school, you felt like everyone's against you and get them to feel that feeling. 
And then they go, all right, I want you to imagine someone in this year level that you think is a far greater person than they get credit for. Like who's someone that you just don't think is seen for who they are. In fact, they probably get bullied. And I want you to imagine that sitting on the end of their bed and, you know, music's playing. It could be Shawshank Redemption or the score from Braveheart. And then, um, and then uh, you know, they would imagine that person. And then I say, all right, I want you to imagine someone in your life that has actually supported you. May not even be your best friend, but who at school has always made you feel confident. And I'd play all these emotions, bringing them up. And I'd use sensories like, you know, the sounds and the, and the smells and everything to bring them right there. They're laying down on the floor in the pitch black, right? Then I bring them up and huddle them all together. Now, by this stage, there's out of 300 kids, probably 200 of them are crying. And, and the teachers are freaking. And then I say, right, I want you to acknowledge someone in this group. I want you to thank someone in this group. And so what happens is they start cutting over the group and they say, right, Connor, when I came to this school from my other school, everyone teased me about my weight. And yet every science class, you would fight for me. And then they'd be crying, right? Because they didn't need much of an opportunity. They, all they needed was permission to be authentic. And then it starts to move. I just slowly guide it towards who are the people you need to acknowledge, right, and, and apologize to. And then this shit took off. And I, I can't explain it, but I would have done it. I would, you drive out my old Valiant Chrysler with a stereo in the back, and I'd have a nose ring, and I was 18. And these kids were, sometimes I was 17 and 16, and they were 16 and 17. And I'd walk in and I'd be swearing and the teachers would walk me through and they'd be going, oh my God. And I'd be ratty as, right, bleach blonde hair. And I'd run these things and it was just transformative. And it was the best job I've ever had. I'd get in my car at the end, I'd be just elated and deflated. And still to this day, like the other day, I drove into a, a, a gas station and there was this massive bloke, red hair, red beard, huge, staring at me. And we're both filling up the gas. I'm looking over going, this ain't going to end well. And he just walks over and he just like starts tearing up and puts his arms around me. And he goes, you know, like, you have no idea. And I still get that when I go to pubs and stuff. It was just, it was so beautiful. And also, I didn't do anything. It's just that just created that sense. So long story short, in terms of the creativity when I went to do that at summer camp after that, cause I was doing life coaching, I thought I've got no fucking life yet. I've had no life experience. I did this summer camp and then I came back to that and I said, I want to combine that work with television or radio. I want to get to bigger. I don't want to just do it to 300. I want to do thousands. I want to create a movement around this. And that's when I got into the entertainment industry and I'm still yet to circle back to do it for greater good. Instead, I got caught in just the entertainment, superficial stuff. But, you know, life is long. You bet. And somewhere you get recognized early as someone with talent winning 15 Days of Fame. Well, yeah, when I came back, that was funny. When I came back from, from doing all that stupid stuff overseas, there was a radio competition. And I was driving out to one of my school talks, right? And I'm in my Valiant. And they're saying, what's your claim to fame on the breakfast show? And I rang up and said, oh, me and my mate just did all these talk shows laughing. And they said, oh, yeah, tell us about it. And so I told them the story and they were all in stitches. 
So I go into the school talk and I come out and the producer has rung me back and she said, we're running a competition where we're taking just some random person from obscurity and we, we're going to try to turn them into a celebrity. So for 15 days, that person is going to be all over radio, is going to be interviewing all the biggest stars on our network. We're going to be doing TV appearances all over the place. You're going to do a fashion shoot. You're going to release your own song that we're doing a duet with one of the local stars. Um, you're going to MC concerts. And it was like you drive around in a 30-foot limousine. You'd be staying in a penthouse suite for, you know, three and a half grand a night. I was like, yep, that sounds like me. So I went and <laughs> I went to this sort of audition thing. And uh, they had 10,000 people that had gone for it. And as I go to meet them, I go into the back room and I'm wearing these like these parachute pants, right? And I've gone to take, I've gone to the urinal mat and the urinal, the way the urinal works and I, and it still doesn't even suit me. I, I somehow splashes urine all over these parachute pants and you cannot hide them. Like it's the way that they were like sand colored. And so I start pressing the um, hairdryer and jumping my crutch up to the hairdryer. Now they're, they're banging on the door. Hello, you're going to come back into the audition. We wanted to meet you. And by the way, that, that approach is never successful. Well, it's like, so I go in there and they, and the guy says, cause he's a radio people and in radio in, in our country, which is one of the leaders in radio, you just have to own your shit, right? Like it's all about vulnerability and authenticity and just about being real and, and, you know, relatable stuff that no one wants to talk about because everyone's embarrassed. Well, I walk in there and they said, what took you so long? And I just looked him in the eye and he said, I pissed all over my pants. <laughs> and it was just that. And he just goes, right, you're our man. So I, I did this thing for 15 days. And by the end of it, they gave me my own radio show. And they and and then with this is literally within months of me saying I want to take reach. So reach was the life coaching and the and the foundation. I want to take to a big audience. And within a few months, I had the will, you know, the country's biggest network say, you can do any radio show you want. And how old are you? Uh, I'm 22. Not bad. So I go, I go, all right, I can do any radio show I want. I want to do what I do out in the schools, but I want to take it to a bigger audience. And so I create this thing called Dash. And, and the thing around Dash is it was, it was I heard it at a, a funeral and you might be familiar with it, but it was like, it was called Dash. And the tagline was the two dates in your tombstone um, don't mean as much as the Dash in between, right? So the two dates in your tombstone uh, are not nearly as important as that dash in between. So what's your dash? You know, how are you going to make the most of your dash? And it was well ahead of its time, but it was because it was, you know, this is like 20 years ago. It was a podcast. It wasn't a radio show. And what I would do is I would take, you know, the world's most successful people like Mandy Moore, a pop star, an adventurer, or a millionaire, an entrepreneur, and I would break down their dash, not what they've achieved, but how, who supported them, 
you know, um, what were their doubts they had to overcome? What were their biggest milestones? You know, how did they um, uh, combat uh, mental health issues? Like, and it was literally talking about the stuff that at the time was not for commercial radio. And so, because, you know, like it wasn't superficial, it was way too deep. Because it was that guy, remember in the actor's studio, Matt? James Lipton. James Lipton. That's what it was inspired from. It was it was inside the actor's studio. And my friend used to send me VHS tapes from New York of because I saw it when I was over there. And I was like, that's the real conversation I love. You get an actor and you break down his life journey. So I literally was doing that. Now, needless to say, it didn't really take off because it was it wasn't the right format for the medium at the time. But from there, I um I I had proven myself and then I was able to, I, I, I aimed for the best job in TV. So I want to work in TV now. And I went for the, I looked at the best job I could think of. And I went after that. And so my, my journey shifted again. You then somewhere in that neighborhood, start a long successful run in another medium as you tackle television. 2004, incredible run that you had with getaway yeah getaway was so for those you know and and most of them will be but so getaway is a magazine type travel show and so it was it was a super brand and it you know it's still so well known but it you know it's been it was on air at the time it'd been on like it's been on air for like 25 years right but yet there was a time where it was on prime time and you know, it was valuable because before the internet, this is how you learn where to travel from the world. And because we're so far away in Australia, that's massive, right? And it had like, it always had rotating, you know, five or six travel reporters. And it would go for an hour on a, on a Thursday night and people from all walks of life would, would watch it. And you'd have like six minute stories each in a different place. So it might have, you know, Katrina Roundtree is over, um, you know, in, in Venice doing a food tour. Someone else um, is in um, uh, Lake Titicaca doing an adventure. Um, someone else is in the ice caves of Iceland. I might be snowboarding in Japan um, and someone's doing an African safari and that was your week. And then it would go to the next week. And it was just, the, you know, the world's best experiences. ...for nine days and it doesn't stop, day or night, and I mean that. There are always people on the streets. Look, to be honest, this place blows my mind, and not necessarily in a good way. It stinks, it's dirty, there's a lot of drunks everywhere. It's like one big Spanish B&S ball. Facing six ton of furious beef tomorrow morning is looking a lot more appealing. So naturally, as a 22-year-old, I go, like, what I want, I'd just been travelling a lot. What job do I want? Well, I want the one on TV that pays a lot. And then what I have to do is I want them to fly me business class to the greatest experiences on the planet, right? And I just want to do those things like I was just doing while I was backpacking. But, you know, I want to I want to talk to the people at home. And it was just like, they call it the dream job. And so I arrogantly said, I want that one. And um, and then I, because I, I wasn't a TV presenter, I had to figure out how to get there. Um, and that was, 
that was, I suppose, my first foray into marketing. <laughs> well, it was my second because my first foray into marketing was my love of branding when I would brand all the train stations in Melbourne with my tag. So, you know, like I got a five-year bond for graffiti when I, when I was at that school and Jim Steins came out. I had a five-year bond because I'd written, drawn Porky Pig in a cop outfit saying, fuck da police. And I was caught by CCTV, which was well ahead of its time. And they took a photo of me and then they were tracking me down for weeks. And they finally caught me at footy training one night and, and dad and I had to go into the cop shop. So that was, I loved branding. It's just, was, it was just, I was just trying to get as much free exposure as I could get. So the second was, how do I sell myself? And, um, and it turns out it worked and it turns out I really loved it. And it, and I tried to read the play and it, and I basically, it was two parts, the product I had to get right. And then I had to sell it. But if I wanted to be a TV presenter, I wrote down a getaway presenter First, I wrote down the exact gig I wanted. I wanted to be the getaway host. And I want to be the 20 to 25's adventurous one. And I wrote that down in my journal and I've still got it. And then I said, right, I'm going to try to get that within 12 months. And so I broke down every month to every week to every day, almost to every hour. And I obsessed over this thing. And I wrote down everything that I'd need to be to be that host. So I did every TV presenters course in Australia, drove all the way around, you know, up all everywhere, ran out of those, did every voiceover course I could find, ran out of those, did a lot of acting courses. And then I started to create my own courses because I still had a lot of weaknesses. And where I had a weakness, I would just attack. So for instance, I, I would get distracted. If I'm talking into a camera, anything could happen around me, I'd be distracted, right? And I couldn't handle that. So I thought I have to, I have to confront that. Otherwise I'm going to be out on the street and I'm going to get take after take after take. So I said, all right, how do I do that? So I went to the supermarket and I stood in the doorway, you know, where the automatic doors are coming on, on each side. I did it at peak hour and I just stood there and I had my cousin with his handy cam and I would recite these 45 second pieces to camera that I would write down the script, you know, like I'd record it on VHS of a presenter. I would write down his script and then I would, you know, I'd learn it myself. And so these people were trying to push past me, right, with their trolleys. And I'm standing there going, welcome to, you know, Better Homes and Garden today. Today we've got, you know, Joanna Griggs is going to be telling you how to do your gardening or whatever it was. These people are going, excuse me, excuse me. And I would just go bang, bang. And I'd do it and I'd just be distracted. And then the next week I'd do it again and I hated it until I could stand there and just, it didn't matter what came at me. You know, the doors are coming side by side. They're going beep, beep. I never knew that when they were going to hit me. And then I thought if the other area is people, I would, I'd be embarrassed that people I know would see me on the street talking to a camera. So I thought, where's the spot where I'd most likely see people? And it's Chapel Street in Paran, right? So there's this one main area. There's a, a cinema there on one side, cool fashion shops on the other, and the main street where there's just people just doing laps, right, trying to look cool. 
And so I stood on the bin on one side and my cousin on the other side of this street. And I stood up really high and just presented and presented until I was so embarrassed and so comfortable. Now I did this for sort of eight, eight months. I, I got a personal trainer cause I was, had a big beer gut and I got super fit, right? Like even had, I think I had abs at that stage got super fit. I'd read all these biographies on Oprah Winfrey and, you know, like try to learn sort of unlocked lessons. I learned about the craft. I'd done memory courses. Then I hired a proper camera crew. So I raised 10 grand from a surf shop and I I hired the proper camera crew from the network, which cost me like 1500 bucks. And then I got a proper graphic designer, a proper fashion photographer and I cut this video together. It was a showreel in VHS. And it was like I'd given birth to this thing over like 12 months. I'd spent 10 grand. People were spending 500 bucks on a showreel. And I was like, mate, I, I don't want to be caught amongst the masses. I want this thing to cut through so they can imagine just grabbing me and putting me straight in a slot. And as soon as I finished this thing, I kid you not, I get a call from someone who had seen me do something and they said, Hey, um, I'm thinking of a new music show at channel nine, uh, which is who has getaway, uh, the nine network. And have you got any footage of yourself? And I said, Oh, I think I've got something sitting around here. Like I have just printed these 250 things ready to just send out like a message in a bottle. And I sent it three packages up and said for the guys at nine and I got a call within two weeks saying, we want you to audition for Getaway. I turn up to the audition for Getaway against four other people. And it is humiliatingly hard out on the street in a spot where all my friends would see me. And just as my little doubt would pop up on my shot and say, have you got this? I'd say to myself, fuck yeah. I did this over the front of Chapel Street. I stood in the back of a supermarket and I silenced that little mofo so quickly and got the job within a month. And then I was in Japan snowboarding and then I was running with the bulls in Pamplona within three months. And I look at my journal and at the top of the list is the adventurous host. And I was just like, what a lucky motherfucker. If you're in search of vast landscapes and wide open plains, you will find it in Western Australia. But come prepared to drive, because getting from A to B can take a few days. But if you make the effort, you'll reap the rewards. I'm road testing the Golden Quest Discovery Trail, which starts in Coolgardie, just outside Kalgoorlie, and does a thousand K loop north up and around Laverton, following in the footsteps of the early prospectors. Conditions were incredibly tough, and the workers coined a catch cry. Damn Coolgardie, damn the track, damn it there and damn it back. Damn the country, damn the weather, damn these gold fields altogether. I don't know what they were whinging about. Doesn't seem too harsh to me. Uh, You had so many, you know, hits in that period, but one that struck me, which I wanted to ask you about, was sort of the evolution of Fifi and Jules. 
Well, that was the radio show that I came back for. And Fifi Box is this dynamic firecracker, giggly, this lovable, not adorable. Like I think about, um, you know, the the Hollywood characters that she would suit. Um, and not like an Amy Schumer either. She was, but she was just like this um, haphazard. She just... She had this vortex that just drama would happen to her in her life, whether it was a single life or, you know, with her friends. And she was just, incre- she still is incredibly entertaining. And I was lucky enough to be paired up with her um, on an afternoon drive shift that was, you know, national across, across the country. And it was a huge platform. And I look, I love radio. I, I, I'm going to go back to radio eventually in my life because I just, it's just a really fantastic medium. Like it's short and sharp and you have an idea and you can test it. And then the whole world would, would rise around you. It felt like, and what I love most about radio was that conversation. So, you know, we would do all sorts of crazy things and stunts and, you know, for years. We are being elevated to a height of 119 meters. And then we go straight down to speeds of 135 kilometers. Steve Jules, how are you doing? I'm not doing well and I'm not talking anymore, guys. I have to switch off mentally. Tell you what, it's pretty high. So it feels like we're going up a skyscraper lift. The only problem is we're on the outside of the building. Just want to tell you right now. And uh, no, this is an important moment because we've, we've spent three years together and it's the first time I'm ever going to be honest with you because the last three years have... Um, I love you, boys. Me. I love you. But I was just going to say... I thought you'd be more scared about the fact that your lungs are in your mouth. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. <laughs> but what I loved most about it was we had so many listeners, you could ask any question, any question, and someone listening will have, it would have happened to them. So we had this segment called We Got One. And it's like based off that, you know, the sound, the sound effect was that um, the Ghostbusters, we got one. And, uh, and I would just get on and I'd say, you know, there was a phone call, it was 13, 10, 60, 13, 10, 60, give us a call if you've been shot. And then you'd have, you know, five stories of people, how they either accidentally shot themselves or got shot or whatever. And it would be a mix and people would be on the edge of their seat. And then I'd say, 13, 10, 60, have you ever died? And you'd have people that have, died and woken up on on the um in a morgue with a doctor over the top about to do autopsies now people will say i don't believe that but you hear the stories in car accidents and you just and 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 someone would tell you the, the friggin' story and you just be there go like and so these are the things that i love i just i just i mean it's a dinner party right matt but you just you just have an endless <laughs> array of guests as I've gotten to know you, Jules, since we started coming down to Australia for Advertising Week, your finger on the pulse of that intersection of the social landscape and the world of influence, influencers, all definitions, all combinations, all permutations. You've got your finger on the pulse better than anybody I know on the intersection of all that. Yeah, it's only because it is, um, it's a combination of, I suppose, because in radio, especially radio, you got to, you sort of really got to 
have your finger on the pulse, like daily, like fresh, like what are people talking about this morning? And then I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's such a social media is such a stunning artistry. I mean, I love the content. I love the creativity, like just, I mean, the best thing about CV19, the memes, I just can't believe how clever people are. Um, it's like I, the, the first one I saw, which was a WhatsApp thread and it, you know, in WhatsApp, it, when you create a group, um, <laughs> it just gives you these little labels. It was just a screen grab right at the start. And it just said, um, China created a group CV19. China invited you. China invited rest of world. China left CV19 because it was right at that time where they had it, gave it to everyone, and then they had cured themselves. And just and just people like that. And so I've always, I've always really, I, I think the meme culture is this fantastic visual comedy. And so when I when I was doing the radio show with Fifi, you know, because I had the TV background, I was like, we're doing these massive stunts, right? Really big fun stunts. Um, and we're recording the audio that we're playing that afternoon and we're playing the audio because for eight minutes, but the stunt itself, right. Um, I'm trying to think we used to do this thing called a blackout challenge, right. And a blackout challenge was like where you'd blindfold the other host and then you'd walk them into a scenario where they had to sink or swim. So I'll give you an example. I lift up my blindfold and I'm on stage in front of 300 people and it's an open mic night. And they're all staring at me, wanting me to make them laugh. And you have to sink or swim. Or the other one is I lift up the blindfold and Fifi's in front of a woman who hasn't had a wax, like legs spread. And she has to, like, it was big, crazy. On That's great. Shock, I love that. Shock value. But you'd have to come up with hundreds of these a week. Like from a marketing point of view in a creative agency, radio is like, and it just gets, it, it's not a, a, glo, a, a campaign. It just happens over three minutes. Just these great little, not that, that those are good examples, but um, I realized it would do these stunts and no one was taking photos and no one was even filming it. And so I, all my ideas were visual, right? So I, um, I was like, all my ideas are like, let's come up with this idea. And they go, this is radio, mate. This is, they can't see you. And I'm like, well, why don't we just, they'd say go and do it but just do it and and then film it and whatever and just put it on social media and so that's what I was doing I was just getting taking photos on my iPhone and recording audio and, and just sort of almost taking the same content but putting it in the chop shop here's this photo and I'm writing caption this here's the 45 second clip here's the question what should we be doing next and so I, I, we ended up creating the the most engaged Facebook brand page in the country and then from that, a lot of the media agencies and brands were reaching out to the radio network saying, how did you build that asset that sat, sits at the top of the leaderboard across KFC's Facebook page? And, you know, the politicians, our prime minister's Facebook page was ours for a while. And, um, and so they said, Jules. And so they came to me and, and said, what do you know about advertising marketing? And I go, well, nothing. Um, but they said, can you come out and talk to these brands and agencies about how to engage social tribes? How do you do digital content? 
And so I would craft this thing and just break down the story of how I was doing it. Influencer marketing started to garner a bit of attention and they all needed to create social content. And they remembered this guy, me going out and, and doing it. So, and cause I was a D grade celebrity, I was inundated with all these sponsored post requests. This is before there was a term for influencer or micro influencer. So I made a couple of hundred grand really quickly and I thought, shit, there's a lot of money in this. And then I thought, and I'm not even that good at it. And I was looking at all these other ones. And originally there were celebrities like your footballer or um, a, a reality TV star or a pop star or an actress. But I realized they had big audiences, but they'd got the audience because they're on The Bachelorette and then looked down and had 200,000 followers. But they're actually shit at creating content. Whereas there was this next wave of everyday people that had built 20,000 followers, but they'd built them pick by pick video by video and actually had the craft. And I thought that's where the new wave is, right? They're not, it's not celebrities. It's these content creators like influencers. Now during the process, they became celebrity influencers and the Kardashians and everyone thought they were influencers, but they weren't. The real influencers are what they now call micro influencers. In those days we were calling them citizen influencers, but they're just real customers. They're everyday people that have built these sort of small but highly engaged tribes. So what are the measurements that do apply for influencer marketing? Well, there's the power of word of mouth, there's the operational ROI, and then there's increased ad performance. So, word of mouth. We know that it's far more credible to get a recommendation from someone you trust saying, how good is that brand? versus the brand themselves saying, how good am I? And so that's exactly how we measure influencer marketing, by that enhanced engagement that is created by that trusted referral versus brand-generated advertising. And so I thought, shit, the, the process is painful, though. Um, the brand wants us to do a sponsored post. Nike goes to the media agency, goes to our sales team, goes to my talent agent, comes to me and says, you know, do a slow-mo shot of you jumping, you know, wearing sneakers and put a URL in the caption. I'd say you can't put URLs in the caption on Instagram. It'd go all the way back down this chain and take months to sell one piece of content. And so um, I just created an app and a workflow. And so that began Tribe where I thought rather than sort of, digging for gold, maybe I'll just start selling shovels and help other people make money. And that was about five years ago yeah. when you started it? Yeah, correct. And give us the current temperature. Are you ahead of where you thought you'd be? Are you behind? And knowing you, how are you converting what's going on right now as a way to turbocharge your global growth? Well, by no we're certainly not ahead of where I thought I'd be. I mean, you know, don't forget in the early days, you're so naive. You think, you know, cause the first thing was, right, we're going to raise money and we're going to bet on the fact that this influencer marketing thing is something right. So, and that's really ballsy because you're communicating with people that can't even see it, don't understand it yet. Keep comparing you to what they think it is based on traditional references of celebrity endorsements. And you're saying, no, no, it's all different. So the first thing is you've got, to, you've got to bet all your chips on black. And luckily, it is something that is a category and it's only getting better. So, and it's here to stay, right? Because I built it on the fundamentals of it, which is, 
you know, the fundamentals of it is really powerful. It's word of mouth recommendations and it's actually reverting to go before um, mass media back down to tribal stuff, which is lasted longer than sort of broadcast TV and radio. It's, you know, telling stories and having influence around small tribes, whether it's across the globe or across a campfire, that, that fundamental ain't changing in, in human psychology. So, um, but, you know, naively I thought at the start, no, no, is if I, if I build the tech and this thing ta- um, is actually real and it has longevity, then those two things will just combine and it will be explosive. Well, it doesn't work like that. The, the, the category is still huge, but, you know, we're, we're, we're in five cities across the globe, US and, um, and, and UK and Australia. UK is our biggest market. Um, US, we launched there last year. We've done, you know, we've worked with 8,000 global brands, 14,000 campaigns. And we now, we have 90,000 content creators and we generate around half a million dollars worth of branded content picks and clips every day for our clients. And it's a, it's a marketplace. It's a tech platform and it's only going to get better, but um, it needed, it needs, as I say, the paradigm shift to go, because influencer marketing, people used to think of influencer marketing as um, paying to access the influencer's reach. But the reality is you can buy reach wherever you want, right? What's special about influencers is their content. It's their craft because advertisers, you know, they can buy reach, right? But what they cannot seem to crack is having mobile first creative because all of the existing creative solutions are, are, are built for one billboard, one stunning billboard, one stunning TVC. You know, it's traditional, traditional creative solutions just cannot alone um, service the growing needs of digital advertising and the needs of modern marketers, which is I don't want one stunning 60 second clip. I need a hundred of them and I want to put them all out into the world. And those ones are going to go to the mums and those ones are going to go to the college students. And those ones are going to go to the, you know, the, the, um, the, the millennial girls in fashion. And those ones are, you know, we have personalization. And what we've done is very well is we've solved the distribution of ads, but we haven't solved the creation of them. Funnily enough, micro-influencers, or in fact, anyone these days with a smartphone is the fastest growing creative solution on the planet. It's actually a brand's own customers who have the tech in the smartphones and have the talent in that a billion people have graduated from the University of Instagram. And it just takes brands to go, CV19, I can't go to my production studio. How the hell am I going to do this? Everyone's stuck at home. And then they go, why don't I ask my consumers to take some stunning photos of the new Diageo Guinness you know, Guinness beer in a can and take some photos. And they do that through Tribe. And, you know, we've done 700 campaigns since COVID started. And a lot of those are brands who are finally using micro-influencers for their stunning creative assets that they're putting into their ads and seeing results like they've never seen before. Because it looks like a real person and and it's not this over, um, over uh, you know, like it doesn't take too long and it doesn't cost too much and you've got something you've never had before which is variety and volume so it's 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 a it's a really exciting time and i think with the step change towards e-commerce and and more um you know more digital transformations it only needs more and more um uh, instant branded content and that's what tribe does we've got a million picks and clips 
you know, um, from our past, but we're generating heaps every day. And there's a whole new category that I think will emerge that is far bigger than influencer marketing. And it's call it whatever you want, customer generated content, but it is a absolute goldmine. If only um, more brands or CMOs saw the opportunity. And what you've really done, I think, so brilliantly is you have ridden the wave of the democratization of technology that enables all of us to be great content creators. And that's an amazing shift, I think, which we're still only at the beginning of. Yes. Yes. And sadly, like it just is, it is always so much slower than you think, isn't it, Matt? Like, you know, you, you're someone too who can forecast and see trends because you base it on past experience and you're always listening and watching and talking to brilliant people, right? And so you start to see how the market forces are starting to converge, but very rarely do they convert, does it converge quickly? Now, which is a good thing because if you're building technology, it costs a shitload and takes forever. But when you're also raising money and you say to investors, right, we're going to now do this and we're going to go up in this way, it takes an enormous amount of patience for investors because they can very quickly start to wonder whether this, this, what you're working towards, that island that you're swimming towards will be there when you get there. Now, I'll, I'll bet my house on it will be. The world is going to need exactly the solution that Tribe provides it. It's just a matter of will we be the ones who are still there to provide it? And that's my only fear, you know, and that's got less to do with forecasting, more to do how, how well can you run a business? How well can you stretch your runway? And, and that stuff's challenging for a guy, you know, it's a marketing tech company. You know, we've got sort of 60 to 70 people around the globe. You know, I've never studied marketing. I know fuck all about tech and I've never run a company and I'm just trying to surround myself in brilliant people. Brilliant people cost money. And, it, and, it, and it's a and I found myself in an environment that is, I'm a very I'm a I'm a fish out of water. It's not it's not it doesn't draw to, like the amount of time is my that I'm in my sweet spot of storytelling and all that is rare versus the amount of time I'm doing stuff that I actually shouldn't be doing because I'm not great at it. <laughs> There's people more intuitive. But yeah, but going back, going back to where we started with that you know, increasingly absent characteristic of charisma. And part of your magic is you know how to stand up there and perform and get your audience to believe whatever it is that you want them to believe in a moment in time. And you can see going back to what you were saying when you were, you know, in your teens and all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, on a stage in front of, you know, big crowds and you, and you handled it and you're still handling it now. Yeah. Thanks Matt. But it's um, all in all, it's, 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 it's an adventure. And, and, you know, you, you do in startup, you do always just fear that it just implodes. And I've got plenty of friends whose brilliant businesses have, have done that. But um, you know, if you, if you go through it, like all the people that you speak to on, on this series, if you go through it saying, hey, the primary outcome is education, 
you know, I, it's not what you get from it, it's who you become, then, you know, you can, you can rest and, and settle and relax a lot more. And, you know, I've done a lot, I've had a lot of different adventures, but the last five years have been, I don't know if they've been fun, but geez, they've been rewarding. You know, they've transformed, transformed who I am. You know, I, I can't believe I got to, you know, before I started this, I was 36, right? I can't believe how naive and immature and just how little I knew about the world until I, I got into this position. And um, I've just learned so much from so many incredible people. And, and that's the benefit, you know, just the, the exposure you get to other fantastic minds. And it comes back to what I loved about Jim Steins and his stories and, 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 um, and Dash, where you get to unpack this brilliance. And, you know, you've had a lot of these conversations, you know, and you would, you would agree what a, what a fantastic um, immersive education it, it sure beats reading books <laughs> yeah no it absolutely does and and, and just the um, just the variety of it not uh, you know and the unpredictability of it but always always surprises so let's wrap up i'd love for you to send us out it's one of my favorite shows that's out there i think it's brilliant tell us about marketers in pajamas well, Marketers in Pajamas is a video content series, but what's awkward about it is, is that I don't know it's I don't know where it I sort of started a journey not knowing how it ends, but essentially we were on stage at South by Southwest Tribe, Diageo, Nickelodeon, CNN, right? So we had superstar lineup, fantastic um, content in March, and obviously um, the pandemic hit. And then we were like, wow, we, we, we need to get our, we need to get the word out there to more of our more, more clients in the U S. So we're like, how the hell do we do that? And so Keith Weed who's you know, the world's most influential marketer three years in a row is voted by Forbes. He's a, an investor and advisor. And, um, and we've got some other great um, board members that are just, brilliant creative marketers award winners authors and so it was just like shit we're gonna ask them what what do we do right now and then i was like all right i'll record it so i can feed it back to all the marketing team and then i was like why don't i record it and feed it back to our marketing database like you know we've got 60 odd thousand clients in there why don't we just send it to them so they can also learn because they're all they're all we our audience is marketers and we're trying we've got a marketing issue right now so that's exactly what we did and then you know the graphic designer said why don't you call it marketers in pajamas and have a you know uh, locked lock lockdown lunch and learn so that's what we did and we've done about sort of 35 episodes now seth godin and claudine shivo is the um chief global or global chief brand officer for Amazon. Um, uh, we just got loads of different brains, Mark Ritson's and um, people from McDonald's and y- you name it. Um, and, and it's basically just a, a quick 25 minute chat um, on what they're learning through this process and the challenges uh, and also some of their brilliant ideas. And it just, it's dash. <laughs> it's basically just breaking down a bit of their life journey and also the challenge that they have at the moment and passing on some fantastic rich insights 
um, and um, and just trying to impart it for free. So you just Google marketers in pajamas. For those in the in the states, it's spelt with a P Y for pajamas, um, not P A. Um, and it's um, yeah, it's lots of fun. And look, I probably would do it even if no one was listening because, like you, it's a beautiful way to spend some time. Absolutely. Well, this was a beautiful way to spend some time. And I want to thank you, Jules. I think you're one of the guys that makes our industry better and a joy to be around always. And I hope to see you at some point. Uh, I think right now we're still way, way away from anybody flying anywhere between our two countries. True. I just remembered when you came to visit the tribe office and I, 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 I got you a big bowl of yellow M&Ms. I'd taken all the ye- yep. yellow ones out because, I, you know, anyone who is called Lord Matthew Schechner possesses <laughs> uh, yeah. the red carpet. <laughs> it was tremendous. It was a tremendous reception. No question about it. And, and quite memorable. All right, pal. See you, bro. Have a wonderful day. I'll stay in touch. Thanks for your support, too. You're, Cheers. you're a very you got it, pal. generous man. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.